This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It was never supposed to be this way. How often you have you heard that complaint about the way our federal government works? A complaint made by both the left and the right that the system is broken and that it cannot be fixed because the very Congress president and Supreme Court, who have the powers to fix it, are actually part of the problems themselves. But what if the states of the United States, those 50 separate power centers, could get together and propose their own amendments to the Constitution, rewriting the rules that govern Congress, the Supreme Court, and the president? Well, that kind of escape hatch actually exists. It is written into Article 5 of the Constitution, that states can insist on a convention to propose amendments to the Constitution if enough of them get together to do it. It takes two-thirds. It has never happened, but it could. And the question is, should it? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Call a convention to amend the Constitution. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City in partnership with the National Constitution Center with four superbly qualified debaters on stage who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York votes to choose a winner and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. We have two debaters arguing for the motion. First, let's say hello to Larry Lessig. Hi, Larry. And Larry, you're a professor at Harvard Law. You're a constitutional lawyer. You're well-known as a pioneer in the field of Internet law, but you are also well-known for taking strong advocacy positions against corruption in government, and specifically the influence of money in politics. You ran um, in the last presidential election in the Democratic primary. What, what were you hoping to accomplish other than winning the White House for yourself? <laughs> so my objective was to drain the swamp. <laughs> but, but I wanted to do it in a more loving, kind of rainbow coalition-like way. <laughs> Larry Lessig, thank you. Tell us, please, who your partner is in this debate. So my partner is my friend, uh, Mark Meckler. Mark Meckler, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Mark. Mark, you are president of Citizens for Self-Governance, and that's the umbrella organization for the Convention of States Project, which, whose goal is to have the kind of convention that we're arguing about tonight. You are also co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots. So would it be exaggerating to say that you and your debate partner, the potential Democratic nominee, are uh, not sitting on the same side of the political spectrum? Uh, though we are friends, we sit on radically different sides of the political spectrum, which, as you can imagine, was most interesting in this election year. And by the way, as the only non-law professor on the panel tonight, I will be providing translation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark Meckler, and to the team arguing for the motion. And again, that motion is call a convention to amend the Constitution. We have two debaters who will be arguing against it. Please, first, let's welcome Walter Olson. Walter, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You have a, a blog that does very well called overlawyered.com. But interesting thing, when you were a young scholar... Uh, starting out at the American Enterprise Institute, you're, you are going to be focusing on economics. So what sets you looking at law as your focus? Well, my boss then was not just any boss. It was uh, Nino Scalia before he went on the Supreme Court. And he made law seem so much more interesting than economics, uh, especially since lawyers knew how to get around absolutely any words on any page. <laughs> so you made the right choice. I think so. All right. And can you tell us who your partner is, please? And my partner is uh, my friend David Super. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome David Super. Hi, David. So uh, you're a professor at Georgetown Law. Um, your research there focuses on constitutional law, administrative law. Um, you also worked in policy, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. In talking about this convention idea, you have said a convention would be a Brexit 
scale event and not in a good way. So what's the likelihood of that happening? I'm afraid it's all too great. We're, uh, after 200 years, we're on the brink of gambling away uh, our Constitution, and the ground rules for changing it are going to be sorted out by the special interest groups. So the stakes are that serious? They are. All right, well, we're going to be hearing about that as we continue through the evening. Um, Now, our debate goes in three rounds, and round one is comprised of opening statements And here, speaking for the motion, Mark Meckler. He is president and co-founder of Citizens for Self-Governance. He will be arguing for the motion, call a convention to amend the Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Meckler. Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight to discuss what I think is the most important subject facing America today. We have a lot of debates in this country today about what should we do. This policy versus that policy, this much tax versus that much tax, But I believe that those debates primarily miss the point of what's going on in America today. There is indeed a single fundamental question facing us as Americans today, and it is not, what should we do? The question facing us and facing our fellow countrymen is a two-word question, very simply, who decides? The American founders had a simple answer for that question, and it is found in three words that you see up behind the stage, and those words are, we the people decide. I think it's important that we take you back to the convention hall on that steamy September day in 1787 when Colonel George Mason from Virginia arose and addressed the assembly. And he said something like this. My fellow commissioners, I fear we have made a terrible mistake. It is two days before the end of the convention. We have drafted a document that contains a fatal flaw in that it gives Congress the power to propose amendments should they deem them necessary, but it does not give the same power to the people acting through the states. And he asked them this very important question, which I ask you today. Are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will propose the appropriate sorts of amendments to restrain its own tyranny? No government has ever restrained its own tyranny in the entire history of humankind. And if you believe that the federal government has drawn too much power to Washington, D.C., if you believe, as Larry said, that it is time to drain the swamp, then the founders, thanks to Colonel George Mason, gave us a remedy, and that remedy is found by calling a convention of states under Article 5 and draining the swamp. The great plug that we may pull is not an election. We've tried elections. Decade after decade, if we have tried the same thing, which is to elect good people, who we believe represent our interests. And let me make clear, we have an obligation to do that. And yet the swamp remains in Washington, D.C. Then I ask, do we continue to do the exact same thing, argue about policy, argue about the shoulds and shouldn'ts, elect good people, and expect different results? And so here we find ourselves on the precipice of national disaster. The majority of your fellow Americans believe that, by the way, for different reasons. 72% of Americans today say that the federal government is too big and does too much. And I want to make clear, on the right, they have different reasons for saying that. They might think the welfare state is too big or Washington, D.C. controls too much of the country. And on the left, they might be talking about the military-industrial complex. So this is where we find ourselves in America. You and you and you and I, regardless of our political affiliations, regardless of our ideologies, find ourselves at home watching TV incredulously saying, that's not what I voted for. So I come before you today to propose this, to tell you that we are too smart as a people. We have too strong a heritage as a self-governing nation to allow this situation to continue. And so today, what I ask you for is I ask you to stand in the shoes of our forefathers, to be brave, to act boldly, and to call an Article 5 convention to amend the Constitution. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark Meckler. And that is the motion, call a convention to amend the Constitution, and here to make his opening statement against the motion, Walter Olson. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Walter Olson. Thank you, John. Could the U.S. Constitution be improved? Of course it could. When I talk about an Article Five convention as dangerous and uncharted, I therefore am not talking about the fact that I would necessarily dislike the actual amendments proposed. I say dangerous and uncharted uh, for a couple of reasons. And let me start with uncharted. 
This process has not been used in 225 years, and I think there is a good reason why it has not, even though it's clearly spelled out in the Constitution. Because it has never been used, uh, courts have not generated any precedent. We don't know how this would work. Uh, we do know that the relevant language in Article 5 is very terse and very uninformative. It does not answer most of the questions we would like to ask. For example, uh, one of the first questions about a convention would be, does each state have the same vote so that New York has the same vote as North Dakota and California has the same vote as Alaska? Um, many of my conservative friends who are proposing a, a, a convention say, yes, obviously it does. You turn to the literature written by a lot of our more liberal friends, and they certainly are not endorsing that. They would think that would be terribly unfair to the people of New York and California. And yet you look at the text of the Constitution, and it does not decide. Uh, nor does it decide when does Congress have to call a convention. If 34 states currently call for one, uh, then Congress must call it. That's two-thirds of the states. Uh, but how do you get to the 34? There are more than 34 calls already on Congress's desk. I know Congress has no desk, but bear with me. Um, the, these include uh, a large stock of balanced budget amendments, which, however, have different wording. Uh, six or eight, I believe it is by now, uh, 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 proposals from uh, Professor Lessig's um, side on campaign finance and a bunch of old ones hanging around on issues like reapportionment and I think even prohibition. So if a convention is called to deal with a single issue, is it legally bound not to stray off and treat related issues or perhaps completely unrelated issues? The language does not say. What we are setting ourselves up for here is Uncertainty which will be resolved by two different institutions, the Congress and the Supreme Court. And ironically, these are exactly the same two institutions that this whole process is intended to work around. And it's bad enough for Congress to get to make the decisions. The Supreme Court, I love the Supreme Court. It's so wonderful. And yet... And yet it decides things at the very end. After we have enacted, let's say, four constitutional amendments and ratified them through 38 states, and then we find out that the T's were not crossed or the I's were not dotted, and the Supreme Court strikes the whole thing down, we do not need a situation in which we are uncertain whether or not um, constitutional amendments have been adopted in legitimate form. We are a divided nation in so many ways. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it would be a waste of effort, because there would never be, in fact, 38 ratifications of these amendments. The, uh, you can't actually come up with something that would withstand the scrutiny of that many state legislatures. So we would have placed our hopes in this basket, all to lose them in the end. Thank you. Thank you, Walter Olson. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, call a convention to amend the Constitution. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Here at the lectern to debate for the motion is Lawrence Lessig. He is the Royal L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Larry Lessig. So I come to this issue for reasons very different from my friend Mark Meckler. But we come to the same place in concluding we need this procedure to address the different problems that motivate us to be activists in this field. I'm obsessed with the question whether we can have a representative government in America again. I'm obsessed with the fact that at the core of our government is a failed institution called Congress, an institution which in no sense represents us. It doesn't represent us because the politicians gerrymander districts 
So the system is not representative. It doesn't represent us because the politicians suppress the votes of the people on the other side, and it doesn't represent us because the politicians obsessively spend their time raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1%. It doesn't represent us, and because it doesn't represent us, the problems that Americans care about, problems of equality, problems of climate change are problems which our Congress will never address sensibly. The question is, what do we do? How do we fix them? Now, the framers faced that problem, and they looked at a constitution, the Articles of Confederation, that required unanimous consent to be amended. And after recognizing unanimous consent was not possible, they threw up their hands and walked away from it. And they proposed a convention, a constitutional convention, that drafted a new constitution, and they ratified that new constitution against the procedures of the old constitution. We, on this stage, Mark and I, do not want a constitutional convention. Because our constitution gives us a much simpler way to go around Congress. This is Mason's gift to America. It gives us a way to convene a body that's not controlled by Congress for the single purpose of proposing amendments, of proposing amendments which are not part of our Constitution unless 38 states ratify it. One house in 13 states would need to vote against an amendment to make sure it can't pass. And in 2017, there will be 13 Democratic-controlled legislatures and five split legislatures, and 38 Republican legislatures with the five split legislatures. And so when you think in the Democratic side, you can say, that means there are 31 opportunities for a House to block the, uh, the, leg- the proposed constitutional amendment and the money more on the other side. And what that means is not that nothing gets passed, but that the only thing that can get passed through this procedure is something that actually speaks to all of us. And if we fail, we fail. But if we succeed, then we will have succeeded in solving what I think of as the crucial problem of American democracy that it does not represent us anymore, and we have to find a way to make it represent us again. Thank you, Larry Lessig. And that proposal again, call a convention to amend the Constitution. And here is our final debater to argue against the motion, David Super. He is a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Ladies and gentlemen, David Super. It's hard to imagine a worse time to amend the Constitution than now. Uh, We are a nation of anger. We've just elected a president and uh, letters to the editor, polls and so on, say that people wanted to tear things down, wanted to shake things up, but they had confidence there would be checks and balances to keep the new president from doing too much. A constitutional convention throws away those checks and balances. This is a time of division. Uh, Four of the last five presidential elections have left huge segments of the population questioning not just the desirability of the result, but even its legitimacy. Imagine if we push through constitutional amendments through this process and the country now believes we don't even have a legitimate constitution. This is a time of special interests. I'm captivated, as I'm sure you all are, by Professor Lessig's vision of the people coming together to work things out, but that's not who it's going to be. It's going to be the same special interests that control Congress will control who are these delegates. Uh, On occasions in the past when we've amended the Constitution, it was because we as a country agreed on something. We were all together on something. Right now, we're together on very little, sadly. Um, this, is the t- this is very much the time when we should be organizing, persuading, talking with one another, not using uh, the power tactics of a constitutional um, uh, convention to try to paper over the consensus that we simply lack. 
Under the proposed rules for a constitutional convention, every state would have an equal vote. That would mean that delegates from states with just 13% of the American population could put constitutional amendments out there. How could this go wrong? Quite a few different ways. Um, certainly there's the question of who become the delegates. In all likelihood, state legislators will choose themselves. In addition, the ratification process is held up as some sort of a protection. But as Professor Lessig just noted, the original Constitutional Convention scrapped the ratification procedures that it inherited, which required a unanimous uh, agreement, and came up with two new rules, a rule for it, two-thirds approval, and a rule for other amendments later, three-quarters approval. One can easily imagine a new convention doing something very much the same, requiring majority ratification of its, of its new constitution and perhaps reverting to the three-quarters approach for later ones. If that happens, what of the states that don't ratify, that don't like the new regime? They can effectively secede or they can go along with the regime of the new, uh, of the new constitution that has been pushed out by this convention. And also, with regards to ratification, the assumption is that these will be simple amendments, single amendments. Seven of the 27 amendments we've had up to this point have had multiple purposes to them. Uh, So you can imagine log rolling on the constitutional amendments just as you do with legislation. What would happen if we had a proposal for a balanced budget amendment and gun control? I don't know, and no serious person can say that they know. Um, The biggest problem with all of this is that there's absolutely no one to watch the hen house, and it's going to be infested with foxes. Thank you. Thank you, David Super. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is call a convention to amend the Constitution. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address each other directly, and they also take questions from me and from you in our live audience here in New York City. Two debaters arguing in support of the motion, Mark Meckler and Larry Lessig. We've heard them say that this debate is essentially a debate about the question of who decides, that the power... Uh, of the people has been tilted too far in the direction of Washington and therefore taken away, that Congress is a failed institution, not truly representative of the people, and that there are no other options but for this clause of Article 5. The team arguing against the motion, David Super and Walter Olson, uh, they are saying that they're not against the uh, argument that there are problems with the uh, Constitution, that amendments uh, make some sense, but they say this process, this procedure, represents a huge risk due to its utter unpredictability that the framers did not give us a rule book for it, that we are a nation of anger and there could be no worse time than the present to try this option. I want to go to the team first arguing against the motion. You know, we traditionally pay um, a great deal of deference and respect and speak of the framers and the Constitution itself in reverential terms. But are you saying on this one, this clause, that the framers blew it by putting it in there? Would you amend it away if you could? Well, <laughs> we, we know a fair bit about the uh, framers' discussion of this, and my own theory is they ran out of time. They uh, would have done a better job uh, had they not uh, been under the crush of other issues. Uh, I'd like to uh, focus more on what the founders did right. Uh, I don't think they made it quite easy enough to change it. All right, let me take it to the other side. The same question. Um, did the fa- framers get it right, giving this option to the states? They knew exactly what they were doing. They understood the Article 5 process because the vast majority of the framers who were there in convention had actually been in convention multiple times. And there's an implication that this has never been done in American history, so we have no idea what will happen. In fact, we've held interstate conventions 38 times in American history, six times since that convention. The rules have been remarkably the same in all of those conventions. I've read the rules myself. Take it to David Super. Your response to what your opponents were just saying about the fact that, that there is, you know, sort of through precedent, through looking at other kinds of conventions run by states and by interstate conventions as well, that, that there really is a rule book, that we know how it would work. Well, we, we, really, we really don't. We've had one constitutional convention in Philadelphia. We've had all sorts of other meetings and discussions and whatever. We've never put the very essence of our uh, nation on the line. Other countries define who they are by ethnicity, um, by perhaps sometimes by geography, by religion in some cases. This country, we define ourselves by the values enshrined in our constitution. We've never well, put that on the line. Let me take the, the, this question of whether there is 
in fact, through precedent to rule book, bring it back to Larry Lessig. What about that? So the, in the anatomy of this argument, the move you saw David make is the critical move opponents of the convention make. And the critical move is to say we're talking about a constitutional convention. But when you look at the practice in the states and when you look at what the Constitution talks about, it's not talking about creating a constitutional convention. Those words don't exist. What it says is a convention for proposing amendments. And then it goes on to say those amendments have no effect unless ratified by three-fourths of the states. So this is a special purpose convention, and there are literally hundreds of special purpose conventions that do not have the constituent power to radically rewrite or throw out the Constitution of anything. Walter Olson to respond. My point is narrower, which is uh, we are interpreting, as the originalists on the court would say, the original public meaning of the document, not its legislative history. And uh, I love Madison, but the ideas that he had that he didn't have time to convince others of and, and and pack in are not part of the language, they are not part of the original public meaning, and what has actually left us is extremely sparse. Uh, we are not entitled to, use, to fill in the blanks uh, based on our uh, legislative history notion of what they would have done if they'd had an extra week. The history is what guides us in Article 5 process. Every single case, in fact, one court in Ohio went so far in 1971 as to say virtually everything that's justiciable around Article 5 has already been adjudicated by the courts. David Super, one more on this point. Well, not a constitutional convention, um, and amendments can include striking everything and putting in something new. Amendments in Congress are routinely that way. I admire your optimism, but there's absolutely no one to watch over this to make it happen. And if we open up the Constitution in this way, there's absolutely no one to protect us. Right. Let me take your point also in your opening statement to Larry Lessig. It's an interesting point and can see its cohesiveness, so can you argue back to that? So here we're in complete agreement about the nature of the risk. And I do think that there's an incredibly important risk that the same corrupting influences take over in this process as well. But I think the response to that risk is not to to run and hide under a rock. I will stand with you. We'll work together, you and me, to make sure that when these processes happen, we will not allow them to be captured in the same way. Now, I'm not so naive to say that's easy. None of this is easy. It's just important to fix these problems, and if we're going to fix these problems, it's also important to make sure your concern is addressed, that it's not corrupted in the process. Walter Walter Olson. And yet imagine, uh, let's say the balanced budget is the topic of the convention. Imagine trying to keep everyone who has uh, a direct interest in budgetary issues, which means practically everyone, everyone who depends on a government program, everyone who pays taxes. Um, These groups will, of course, involve themselves. Uh, The idea that somehow or other we can purify the process by eliminating everyone who has an interest in federal budget outcomes uh, will, will be left with an empty room. Let me move to a slightly different topic and get a little bit into some of the specifics of the, of the critique uh, of the idea put to, your, to you by your opponents. Mark Meckler, this question of um, who decides how many votes a state will get. Um, you know, we're in New York. There's no way that a population in New York wants Wyoming to have the same number of vo- Anybody here from Wyoming that was... <laughs> Careful. There, yeah. Nobody? Really? Yes. No? Okay. So, I'm safe. <laughs> um, <laughs> So the question would be, in this process, who decides how many votes New York gets vis-a-vis Wyoming? The convention itself will actually decide, but again... If Wait, you, that's the answer? The, everybody, if, uh, if you look at the actual history, yeah. again, we've done this many times in American history. It's always been one state, one vote. There was one exception where they actually tried to change that, the convention of 1861 that was called to try to avert the Civil War, and the proposal was made to give uh, relative votes according to population. And that vote was taken in that convention, amazingly, one state, one vote, and it was defeated. And in fact, from a practical political perspective, all the small states would simply walk away from convention, and there would fail to even be a quorum if it was not one state, one vote. And you think the big states will go along with one? It's the way it's always been, and I think if they don't, then that's fine, there won't be a convention, and then there is no risk. Hmm. So it all works out. <laughs> Larry, Larry Lessig. Yeah, but I, but but I just want to emphasize one point, right? What we're talking about is the procedure for proposing the amendment. The fact that every state gets a vote 
to propose an amendment which they know cannot be ratified unless it is so overwhelmingly popular that three-fourths of the states will adopt it doesn't seem to me to be a tragedy. If they get that wrong, we'll have a failed amendment. If they get it right, we'll have a successful amendment. And the fact that you got one vote doesn't going to determine whether it's right or wrong. Okay, let me take that to Walter Olson. So your partners are saying the safety valve in all this problem, the protection against the risk you're talking about is that the Constitution says that even after um, a convention is called, the country's not going to do something crazy. Uh, 75% of the country's not going to do something crazy. Well, that is a good question, isn't it, whether the country will do something crazy. I, you know, I... The, I have, I have a serious point, which is, um, to a large extent, I go along with our opponents that um, it will probably not lead to disaster because it is so hard to get 38 states. But that's, but that's that, conceding a very big point for, well, for their that, side. Wait, I, I never actually concede anything. I just appear to. The, um, <laughs> the, the, those dissident states could, of course, be among the largest states. And the way that American politics works, California, Illinois, New York, uh, seem to vote on one side and the small states on another side. So it's, it's rather dangerous, even if the states are not very numerous. Um, my own view is that California is capable of, and New York especially, is capable of throwing absolute fits to stop a process that it finds unfair, and that it would find a process in which each of the three stages were controlled by small states to be so grossly unfair. I don't even want to think about what California would do against that, but I don't want to be there when it happens. We are about to go into a four-year period with a president that a great deal of the country does not believe is theirs. Um, Far, far worse if that was a constitution. And that is, of course, assuming that this this convention doesn't do what the 1787 one did, which is change the ratification rules to make its job easier. Larry Lissig. So the way to ratify an amendment is the same whether the amendment comes out of Congress or comes out of a convention. So the problem you have with the ratification process of an amendment is a problem you have with the ratification process of every amendment. So when you say you support the idea of amendments, why do you support amendments that are going to come through Congress but not amendments that are going to come through a convention? Because the House of Representatives is elected with one person, one vote. And I I have to say it's striking here. I'm talking about what is endangered in the Constitution, and we have already thrown one person, one vote over the side in this conversation. No one person, one vote and how it's proposed. No one person, one vote in how it's ratified. Um, this is very alarming for a democracy. I'm John Donvan. The results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. We're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. Call a convention to amend the Constitution. Questions right down here, sir. Hi, William Grassi. I'm still undecided, but I have a question for the pro side. Um, Why don't the states um, rewrite their own constitutions, which are frankly just um, uh, replicas of the U.S. Constitution, except for Nebraska? Uh, I don't see how we get any more democracy uh, at the state level than we do at the federal level at this point. Larry you know, I, I should have the numbers. I apologize I don't. But actually states are quite active in rewriting their constitutions. They've gone through many stages historically, keeping some parts from very old, but going through many significant amendments, some 
Um, some not so fantastic, some pretty good, but this is a very vibrant constitutional drafting process, crafting process. So the idea that um, this practice is not possible or not feasible is just belied by the actual experience of states in passing. In fact, 1972, Mark Wyoming Michael. rewrote its entire constitution. California, frankly, passes constitutional amendments every electoral cycle. So it is a robust and working process in almost all the states. David Super, I'd like to hear your response to that. Well, all of these state uh, constitutional uh, processes, conventions, and uh, ballot initiatives are in the context of the federal constitution. We have the guarantee clause where the federal government will step in if any state constitution ceases uh, to be in the Republican form. It hasn't been used because it hasn't been needed to be used, but that is a backstop. We have the Bill of Rights. We have the 14th Amendment. All of those go on the table if we have opened this up to a national uh, convention, and that convention throws it away. Kate, uh, right in the center there, ma'am, and the mic's coming down the left-hand side for you. The pro side, and particular, uh, particularly Mr. Lessing, has made a somewhat compelling argument um, to hold a convention by mentioning uh, proposed amendments that are probably attractive to many of us, climate, dealing with climate change, a balanced budget. My question is, make the argument to me um, that you are more confident and, and interested in this process than you are worried about the risk of amendments that you don't like rather than amendments you do like. Thank right. you. Well, I'll observe, and I hope this won't upset Larry my Lester. friend here. Um, <laughs> I'll let you know if it does. That... Um, Mr. Trump was not elected with 75% of the population behind him. Indeed, not even a majority of the population behind him. Indeed, not even as many votes as the woman he purports to have beaten. So I am not concerned that we have evidence that the public is as crazy um, as uh, would lead me to worry that we're going to have the kind of over Overwhelming change of the Constitution that um, that I think you and I are both would be both concerned of. I, absolutely, Walter Olson, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question, and uh, one of the depressing things about being in uh, all of our business is that you realize the public often is not quite as attached to some of the rights that we prize. Um, they're called eighty twenty issues, in which eighty uh, percent of the public takes a side. Uh, sometimes we're in the twenty percent. I think all four of us. Um, that will happen sometimes on free speech issues. It will happen sometimes on issues where uh, the rationale is national security for abridging some sort of individual freedom, uh, some sort of privacy, exercising surveillance. And the question has come up again and again, uh, don't we trust uh, the the, uh, ratifying legislatures, given that so many of them have to sign on? And in general, if you take American public opinion averaged out over five or ten years, yes, I do trust it not to make um, weird uh, sorts of errors And yet, uh, it can get in particular moods. It can be stampeded by a security event, uh, say uh, some disastrous attack. It can be stampeded by a silver-tongued demagogue. Um, In in both, no names, no names whatsoever. And I I am confident that if you give the American people a few years, it gets over those momentary uh, flus or whatever you want to call them. Uh, But it might stay uh, intoxicated for long enough. All right. Let's let Larry respond to that. Yeah, it's important to make sure, and my, my, my answer might have made this unclear. It's not the people voting to ratify an amendment to the Constitution. It's state legislatures or state conventions as Congress selects. So the check here is 38 state legislatures or state conventions, not whether in a particular moment of crisis we have the public that goes out to the polls and votes some crazy, insane outcome. David Super, what about that response? Uh, yes, but that's assuming that our state legislators are in a statesmanlike or stateswomanlike uh, frame of mind, and uh, because of the power of money in politics, which you've very eloquently spoken about, we can't count on that. If the public is polling that we need to crack down on free speech or crack down on the Fourth Amendment, uh, I am not optimistic that the legislatures will stand up. Moreover, you keep saying that if 13 state legislators say no, it's 
it's dead. Sadly, that's not true. The most recently added amendment to our Constitution was proposed two centuries before it was added to the Constitution. So if we get some bad amendments put out there by this convention, they will keep shambling on, threatening the republic uh, until we have a wave election that puts them over the top and gets them ratified. That's scary. One, one more on this question from Mark Mickler. Uh, and just to briefly address Professor Super, any state can withdraw an amendment at any time. And, and in fact, many, many states have done that throughout American history. And the movement exists to do that should there be some scary amendment about, out there. Um, in the center there. Hi, Katie Leonard. Um, my question is for the against side. So given that the problems of anger and special interests might just become worse, um, if not now, then when is it ever appropriate to call a convention? Oh, great question. Is there a time? Um, David Super. Given the stakes involved, I am anxious. Um, One could think about uh, calling a convention at a time when we had resolved a great national uh, crisis at the end of the Civil War. They chose not to do so and proposed three amendments, one of which was very compound. Uh, We could have thought of doing that in the Great Depression when our system clearly had failed us. We handled that through other means. Those would be times when there was a great deal of unity in the country. At this time, it's hard to imagine that. And with all respect to uh, all people in in the country right now, I don't know that we're quite uh, operating on the same level as uh, George Washington and James Madison right now uh, in our political debates. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, call a convention to amend the Constitution. And now we move on to round three. Round three, brief closing statements by each debater in turn on our motion, call a convention to amend the Constitution. Here making his closing statement to support the motion, Mark Meckler, President of Citizens for Self-Governance. Thanks for being here tonight to listen to us address this important question and to also engage us in questions from the audience. To me, frankly, that's the most important part because there are three really important words written up behind us on this stage, and those words are, we the people. If you would indulge me in a bit of history, in 1843, a young historian by the name of Mellon Chamberlain traveled the country. He was collecting stories from the last remaining Minutemen who actually fought at the battles of Lexington and Concord. And in 1843, as you would imagine, they were in their late 80s and early 90s, and back then that was really old, right? Not a lot of those guys left. And he knew if he didn't collect those histories, there was no YouTube. They would be lost. And so he was going around collecting these oral histories, and he happened to cross one Captain Levi Preston in North Carolina, and he asked Preston a series of questions about why he fought in those first battles at Lexington and Concord. And he asked them if it was the Stamp Act. Had he been offended by the act of having to buy the stamps and place them on all his documents? And Preston said, never bought a one of them. The governor locked him up in the armory, and that's the last I ever heard of him. He asked him about the great revolutionary writers, and Preston answered, never read one of them. We read the Bible, Catechism, the Psalms, the Almanac. That was about it. He asked him about the heavy hand of British tyranny, and Preston answered, never felt a whit of it. He asked him, what was it that brought you to the field of battle that day? And Preston answered what I think is the greatest philosophy of of the American Revolution and American political philosophy throughout our history. And Preston answered this. He said, son, when we went to fight them redcoats that day, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always intended to. And them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. Today, Washington, D.C. intends that you are not allowed to govern yourself. They prove it day in and day out. And so I am here to ask for your support for the resolution to call a convention to propose amendments to the United States Constitution. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Meckler. And that is the motion. Call a convention to amend the Constitution. Here making his closing statement against the motion, Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Thank you, John. I promise something constructive as an alternative. I don't want to come here and just be uh, the negative guy throwing uh, cold water on your hopes. And in fact, well, this is a vessel for hope. And it's one of the reasons uh, why it attracts so much attention is because people want hope. And we do not have to simply say nothing can be done. I'd like to spend a minute on a proposal um, 
uh, written up by, uh, in a wonderful paper for my own Cato Institute by Mike Rappaport, a law professor at San Diego, which is for a preparatory um, uh, constitutional amendment just on the procedure of how a state convention should work, one which would fill in the blanks that I complained uh, were left blank, one that would provide the specificity and the certainty to let us feel that we could walk forward without the ground giving out under our feet. Um, it makes a great deal of sense because it uh, sets to rest uh, a lot of the procedural uncertainties of where it would lead, who would pick the delegates, uh, whether it would have to stay on a single uh, subject, uh, what would happen to the large states and the small, and I can guarantee you uh, the, the sense of America in general is that we want one person, one vote. We do not want the small states to control everything. It would set those procedures, it would modernize them where appropriate, um, and we would then have the confidence to move forward on exactly these things. The one th idea, though, that I would leave you with is that if you like this idea of first laying out a solid foundation for using the process and then using it, you must vote no on the resolution because it's too soon to jump in there without that firm foundation. Thank you. Thank you, Walter Olson. The motion, call a convention to amend the Constitution. And here making his closing statement to support the motion, Lawrence Lessig, professor at Harvard Law School. So in 2008, Iceland's economy totally collapsed. And when the Icelandic people looked around to try to see what had failed them, they recognized it was their government, a corrupted government that had failed them. And so they started a process to fix it by crowdsourcing a new constitution. They first collected a 1,000 people at random who met together to discuss what the values of that constitution should be. And then they had an election where 500 people ran to serve on a commission that would draft the constitution. 25 were elected, and for four months, they drafted a constitution. Now, four months is about as long as our framers took to draft our constitution, but our framers didn't post their drafts to Facebook every week. <laughs> But the Icelanders did. And after that process, they produced a beautiful constitution, which was then ratified by two-thirds of the Icelandic people in a national referendum. Now, that story is in many ways inspiring, but it's also humbling. Because, of course, Iceland is different in a thousand ways from the United States, but when you think of the courage that they had to do what they did, it makes this debate seem so small. <laughs> because is it really so difficult for us to agree, not to write a new constitution, but simply to meet and deliberate about how to fix the problems that we all believe our constitution has? There is uncertainty, no doubt. But there's also certainty, like this. Congress will not fix these problems. Of that, we can be certain. And we can also be certain of this. The framers gave us a way around Congress. So to remix Hamilton a bit, let me say. <laughs> hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. Oh, not that anymore. But we cannot throw this shot away. Thank you, Lawrence Lessig. And that motion is call a convention to amend the Constitution. And here making his closing statement against the motion, David Super, professor at Georgetown University Law Center. I'm not a gambler. Um, if I was, though, and I found that the um, casino was uh, tilting the, table, uh, the roulette wheel against me, I would certainly not move to increase the odds. We did just have a presidential election where the candidate who spent the most money uh, did not, uh, will not be taking office. Um, nonetheless, on the state level, the kind of money that interest groups that are affected by potential constitutional amendments can throw in is absolutely decisive in legislative races, and putting the entire Constitution at stake when we are trying to, uh, in a system that we, I think, all admit is deeply flawed, is a very dangerous thing. That's on the downside, but what's the upside? The upside is that many of these ideas, if 
proposed, even if put into the Constitution, that are being uh, advocated, I don't think would work. A balanced budget amendment. Is the Supreme Court going to review every budget that comes out to make sure it's balanced? Which justice will chair the Appropriations Committee? Um, What if they spin off the Federal Reserve and dodge it that way? It's not going to work unless we hold our Congress accountable for it, and for that we don't need to put the whole Constitution at risk. Do you really think that the Congress, even if Citizens United was overturned, that the Congress uh, would in fact pass strong campaign finance uh, legislation? The amazing thing about Citizens United is that such a weak provision was nonetheless struck down. Money was big in politics before Citizens United, and it will remain. These are not things that can be successfully accomplished with a, con- with a constitutional convention, but an awful lot of mischief can. Please vote no on the resolution. Thank you. David Super. And that concludes our closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. So um, I have the results now. Remember, the way that we do this is the team whose numbers have moved the most from the first to the second vote uh, is the team who is our winner, that moves up. So the motion is this. Call a convention to amend the Constitution. In the preliminary vote, 34% of you agreed with this. You were for the motion. 22% were against, and a very large 44% were undecided. Those are the first results. Let's look at the second result. In the second result, the team... Uh, arguing for the motion, their first vote 34%, their second vote 44%. They pulled up 10 percentage points. That is the number to beat now. Let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote was 22%. Their second vote was 43%. They pulled up 21 percentage points. That means the team arguing against the motion call the convention to amend the Constitution. Our winners. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center and held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and on Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to our actual live events, visit IQ2US.org. This debate was brought to you with generous support from the National Constitution Center through a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed during this program are those of the program participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson, Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner-Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and the Paul E. Singer Foundation. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thank you.